Let's pray. Father, we uh, gather here uh, this morning uh, to once again uh, turn to your word. Lord, as, uh, as your people, Lord, we still confess, God, that we are ignorant in many ways. Uh, though we may think we know a lot, but Lord, in our practical life, God, we often live as if uh, we are agnostic or even an unbeliever. Um, and so, Lord, as we uh, turn to this portion of your word, God, that you would give us your understanding, open our eyes so that we may see, that we may understand you better. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so the title of my message is um, God's Temple and Its Builders. Now let me ask you a question. Um, so what is your view of the pastors? When you think of people like me, Pastor Jay, when we think of pastors, what is your understanding? How do you view us? Do you think of us uh, or pastors more or less salespeople? You know, trying to sell a product, trying to sell you a product called Christianity. You know, uh, when I was uh, in my first full-time ministry, uh, I was a youth pastor. And, uh, you know, during that time, you know, some of my sermons, I used car as an illustration uh, a couple times. And then uh, the, one of the youth students uh, afterwards, he, uh, she came to me and she, she thought that, uh, that I was a used car salesman. Because uh, she thought, I mean, what do you do during the week? I mean, you know, you don't do anything, right? So she didn't understand. And so she thought that during the week, I would, be, I, I would sell cars. And then on Sunday, I would speak, right? And so that was her view of, uh, of a youth pastor. She thought that, um, that uh, that's all, all I did. And so, you know, all of us have some sort of idea about uh, some sort of, like, um, understanding of, of a pastor, what we do or what we are. Um, but, you know, this passage tells us something. Uh, I'll get to that uh, about how we are to view even pastors. You know, in today's church, we have some extremes. Some churches, they deify uh, their pastors. They put them on a pedestal and making gods out of them. And we see that often in uh, mega churches, you know, a church that are really huge, that have huge congregation, they're like, oh, you know, our senior, our pastor, they do, they do an amazing job. Or like, uh, if your pastor happens to be a celebrity pastor, very well known, a lot of following, you know, the pod, the, the, the pastors that, that do like podcasts, uh, who pastors who write books, people who are very well known, nationally known, like speakers, they're like, whoa, wow. Um, John Piper, Tim Keller, right? And all these people, or even Joel Osteen's of the world. And so there are people um, that some, some people really follow closely, and to them, those uh, well-known, well-respected pastors are almost like a fourth person of the Godhead. I mean, to them, it's like, whatever they, they say is the truth. It's pretty much on the same level as the Word of God. So there are churches, and there are people who deify their pastors. That's one extreme. All the while, other churches and other Christians defy their ministers, and they don't really respect them at all. 
Uh, and I see a lot of that uh, because, you know, I, I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm Korean. Uh, I see a lot of that in Korean churches that are not really growing numerically. If you are at a, 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 a pastor uh, at, at a Korean church, and their number one uh, mandate is uh, growth. The church has to grow numerically. It doesn't really matter how it gets there. You have to grow the church and make sure that the offering goes up so that they would uh, grow their, the size of the congregation, the offering, and uh, so that they can continue build buildings, right? make it bigger, make a name for themselves. And if the pastor do not, does not really meet that expectation or the mandate from the church, of course, they will never come out and say that. But if the, uh, the, pastor, the, the church does not grow under the leadership of the, the pastor, they tend to, then, then they question his leadership. Man, he's not a really good leader. He's not really competent. Right? If there is no numerical growth, then they end up defying uh, the pastors. So there are like some uh, extremes that we see. And is that how we are to view pastors? You know, our respect level depends on the size of the congregation. Right? If you have a big, ch- if you are a pastor of a big church, they will, oh, okay, he must be a really good and powerful pastor. Or does it really depend on, or if you are serving at a small church, then are you uh, less of a pastor? You know, like, um, you know, I, I, I served in all different types of uh, pastor. Uh, I used to be uh, a pastor and just serve in different sizes of, of the congregation. When I happened to serve at a large church, there were a lot of people that wanted to come talk to me. They were like, whoa, pastor, right? And we want to just meet up with you and things like that. But the, 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 the same very people, uh, when I was serving at a different church, at a much smaller congregation, they were kind of just like kind of, they weren't able to associate with me because I was not as significant because of the, the size of the congregation. Or do we depend how we view our pastor depending on the, how eloquent he is? Whoa, you know, when you listen to his messages, you're like, oh, man, he's so good. His messages are so good, and we respect them. So does it really, really depend on that? how popular he is, even with the outsiders. Oh, I didn't know that uh, he was that well-known. My pastor is really well-known that, uh, that much outside of our church. Whoa, new respect for the, new, uh, the, the pastor. You know, how are we to relate, and how are we to view the pastors? Are they our bosses? Are they supposed to pretty much rule over us? So there are a lot of... Um, misunderstanding and different understanding of the, uh, of the pastors, the role of the pastors. And, um, you know, as we have seen in the first few chapters of uh, 1 Corinthians, we see that, um, that Paul focuses on the, the divisiveness uh, in the church um, as people were getting into factions. You know, there were people in the church that said, you know, they, I follow Paul, I mean, Paul, he's the man, he's the founding pastor of our church. So it is only right that we really follow Paul. He's the man. We got to follow him. Whereas some other people in the church, no, 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 no. I, we follow Apollos. I mean, did you, do you hear how amazing his um, the sermons are? His sermons are so convicting, so eloquent. It's like, it just, he, it, his sermons just bring me to tears. It just convicts my heart. Paul, yeah, he founded the church and all, but 
You know, Apollos, he's the man, and I follow Apollos. And some people say, no, 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 you guys got it all wrong. You know, I, we follow Cephas, Peter. I mean, I mean, yeah, Paul's good, Apollos is good, but Peter, I mean, he was the man. I mean, he was the, the closest disciple to Jesus. And how can you not follow Peter? I follow Peter. So they were just all divided in the church. And as uh, Pastor Jay talked about last week, the spiritual immaturity was a real problem in the Corinthian church. And it is caused partly or mainly by their shallow understanding of the gospel. Division in the church, the gossips or quarrels, arguments, and all these things, the divisions in the church is merely a symptom or an outward fruit of the deeper issue that is spiritual immaturity. The reason why there is so much division and all these issues in the church is because of the spiritual immaturity stemming from the superficial understanding of the gospel. And it is still the case today. A lot of people who have been to church all their lives still do not have this firm grasp of the gospel. And think of it merely as a fire insurance. You know, I believe in Jesus so that I don't have to burn in hell, right? So Jesus is my insurance. In the case of catastrophe, right, I'm going to turn to Jesus. But for the rest of the time, I'm just going to live my life just the way I want. So they live their lives according to that belief, even though they say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus, just so that I will not go to hell. So in the the back of their mind, they will not admit it or say it out loud, but in the back of their mind, they say, basically, I'm going to turn to Jesus when the time comes around, when I need him which is at the end of my life, then I will turn to him because he's my insurance. But until the time comes, he's not really irrelevant. He, he's irrelevant. I mean, how many of us throughout our you know, days actually just uh, look at, at the car insurance or the life insurance that we have, the policy that we have? We don't look at it, right, until catastrophe and calamity strikes us. That's how people, some people, a lot of people in the church, that's how they live their lives. Jesus is not that important. And gospel really is for the non-Christians. It's not for us Christians because we already have the insurance. Without the proper understanding of the gospel, you cannot help but be immature infants. On the outside, we may look like grown-ups, but in the inside, spiritual babies. And we have no shortage of that uh, in the church today. The church, we exist to exalt Christ. We exist to love him, the son of God given to us to be sacrificed in our place for the sins that we have committed, but now in heaven, reigning over all by the resurrection power of Christ. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus has set us by his coming and by us submitting our lives to him in repentance and by trusting in him. He has set us free from the, 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 the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and when we get to heaven, when Jesus comes back, the presence of sin. That's what Christ has done for us because under the weight of sin that we were all enslaved, through the, uh, the resurrection power of Christ, 
Now we are set free from the penalty, power, and in the future, the presence of sin. When we get to heaven, we won't even, there will not be even a, a hint of sin and unrighteousness. And that's, the day, that's what we are looking forward to. That is our Christian hope. So without this conviction and understanding, our spiritual growth will be stunted. And it will cause all kinds of issues, such as quarreling, divisiveness, and all these other gossips, and all these things. The Corinthian church has gone through that, and the today's church is still going through this. So we have to really just let the truth of the gospel sink in and let it really transform our lives. What are the implications of the gospel? Right. Now that we hear what God has accomplished for us through Christ crucified and resurrected, what does it really mean for us in our daily lives? Right. Oftentimes we kind of hear about the gospel and then say, okay, I, I know the gospel, right? But then... What are, what are the implications then? And that's where we fall short. Oftentimes, we just don't think, of, think about it much. But what, is that, what does that really mean in our daily lives? Right? And let's come back to that uh, at the end. How should, it, how should it change our worldview, the way we behave, the way we think, the way we understand how things are, why things are the way they are? How should it really change our worldview? And has it changed our lives? Right. Because if it hasn't, if the gospel, if you say you claim that you know the gospel, but if your life has not changed, then it is entirely possible right, for you to, um, to really have the shallow understanding that you don't really know. And so you know, in, a, in our small group one time, I said, you know, what is the gospel? Tell me. Because, you know, I ask and say, what is, do you guys know the gospel? Yeah, yeah, we know. So tell me, what, what is it? And they got stumped. They're, uh, the, well, uh, you know, you know. And I'm like, what, right? Um, so to the, to the degree that you can articulate and uh, articulate the gospel, that's what you really know. Because if you cannot really even tell me or tell anybody what the gospel is, then it doesn't matter how much you think you know, that means you don't really know, right? You, only, you can only articulate what you truly know. So think about it, and if I were to ask you right now one-on-one, -on -one, right, tell me what the gospel is. Can you really explain it? Can you articulate it? Right? You may have bits and pieces, but can you bring it together and make it cohesive? Does it really make sense? Anyways, in, in today's uh, text, uh, so once again, in the context of this tribalism uh, that the church was going through, um, Paul is speaking on this issue. Tribalism, divisiveness, was a destructive issue in the church. So Paul was compelled to deal with it decisively instead of taking a passive approach. So in addressing and correcting their error, he emphasizes the centrality of the gospel, and Christ crucified, and now tells us the nature of the church and how the church should relate or look upon the pastors and their work. And you know, this section that we just read is one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. You know, the Roman Catholics, 
they use it to prove their doctrine of purgatory, that the fire you know, will purify people in their next life. And you know, they have to just be purified. They'll be right until they get to heaven. So they have to somehow, through this purgatory, uh, and they use this passage to prove that, to back that up, saying that you know, they, they make them fit for heaven. And that's what this passage is about. Or some ill-informed people, modernists, they think that this passage talks about salvation by good works. You know, it just talks about, you know, the good works, and then when it gets in the fire, you know, by the fire of God, that, that is God's judgment, if it burns up, but then if there's something left, then you are saved. But if you don't, all your work is burned up and there's nothing to show for, then you're not saved. So some people think that that's what this passage is about. And many Christians interpret this section as applying to the, to the judgment of individual Christians rather than the building of the local church. So when they read this passage, a lot of Christians think that, well, this means it's talking about your work being burned up. So I have to do the kind of work that will survive the fire of God, his judgment. So they think this passage is talking to speaking to us individually. While this passage teaches that there will be a judgment of believers' works at the judgment seat of Christ, really this passage, the primary focus is on the builders or the pastors of the, of the local church. So try to just understand all this. First, um, Paul talks about, so the first point that I want to bring out to you is the essence of the church. Paul goes into, as he's dealing with this divisiveness of the church, he first turns his attention to the essence of the church. What is the essence of the church? Uh, you know, in, in one of our small groups, um, you know, we were talking about the divisions and the issues that, you know, that a lot of churches face. And the question was raised, and the question was, basically, if divisions in the church is to be shunned and, and unity is called for, then why are there so many different denominations in the church? There are so many de uh, denominations, right? There are just Baptists, Presbyterians, uh, Methodists, uh, in the, ch the churches of God, and all these different denominations. Why, why, why are there so many uh, denominations? If the unity is called for, and we should not be divided, why are Christians so divided? Why can't we just be simply united? Why can't we be just one and um, you know, say, hey, we love Jesus? You ever wonder about that? Or is it just our small group that has some inquisitive people? Why? Yeah, I mean, the question, why, why do we have so many different denominations? When Jesus prayed, for that, that we be one. So this is how I answered it. Um, we need to make a distinction between having different denominations and tribalism or divisions, uh, divisiveness. My take is having distinction or having, uh, having your own convictions or traditions in and of itself is not wrong, it's not sinful. Existence of different denominations in and of itself is not wrong. What is wrong is having this tribalism, denominationalism, 
right? Boasting in the denomination that you belong to. It's like, oh, you know, I belong to such and such denomination, and we are the true defenders of faith. But so the rest of the, the, the denominations, they don't know anything. You are not one of us. And that's too bad because we have the truth. And we have it all, we got it all together. We are truly, we are, basically we are in 100% agreement with, with the Bible. So we, we are good. Oh, you're not one of our denomination? Too bad. That's tribalism. That's division. So having that kind of mindset, that is wrong. It is inevitable that we have distinctions and different convictions. It is inevitable because if we have different people coming together and when we, even though we are looking at the, at the same scripture, there can be different interpretations, different understandings. United Methodist Church, you know, for, you know as the, the denomination itself says, united. So for, 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 for such a long time, they've been trying to hold their, all the Methodists together and say, oh, we are United Methodists. But very recently, they had to be, there came a point where they just simply could not claim that they are united because of their view uh, of the, uh, the, the ordaining uh, or the, the, the homosexual marriage, right? That just divided that denomination. I, I didn't know that. I thought everybody was for it, but there were uh, people within the United Methodists that said, no, that is wrong, right? You cannot ordain or you cannot marry and bless their uh, marriage before God. And there's, you know, there are a lot more people in the, in the denominations that know that it's not, that it's totally acceptable. God loves them all, so we have to accept everybody just the way they are. It's all about love. So they, therefore, so long, they've been trying to work at it and trying to, no, but we are united Methodists. We gotta be, we gotta stay together. But there came a point where they simply could not agree on this issue. There is a difference between unity and uniformity. Okay. There's a difference between unity and uniformity. Uniformity is where everyone thinks the same and does the same. It's basically a cookie-cutter, top-down approach. I'm talking about Catholics a lot, but, you know, Catholics, right, there's a church hierarchy. It starts from the Pope and the Cardinals and all these things. So to them, it's a good example of uniformity. Right? They say, church's interpretation is the only one that really matters. So whatever the Pope says, whatever the position on the church, that's how you are to act. There is, should be no deviation. There should be no different uh, understanding of Scripture. Whatever that we say, this, uh, this, uh, this uh, verse says, that that's how you are to understand it. So even their understanding of Mary, the, uh, the original language says, you know, when... Uh, Jesus was being, before he was being, uh, he was born, the angel just came to Mary and said, blessed are you uh, among, among all women. And that's how we understand it. But that word um, among, right? Uh, they can be also, that word can be translated as above or with or in different ways. So the way Catholics understand, uh, translate that verse, uh, that word is, blessed are you above all women, the mother of God. Right? And so they elevate the status of Mary. So there's the Mariology. Right? It says, oh, she is the, the, the special, special woman who conceived our Savior. So they interpret it that way, using that word, say, uh, bless I saw that they, that's why they, their interpretation 
of Mary is that they elevate. So people may, uh, pray to Mary, right? They turn to Mary in times of trouble because of that one interpretation. And they say that is the only interpretation that you are to have. You see? It's, it's uniformity, top-down approach. And whatever the top people say, that's how you are to act, and that's how you are to follow. A lot of um, cults, a lot of cults have that too. Right? Whatever the charismatic leader says, everybody has to be on, in the same boat. You have to just absolutely just blindly just follow whatever that uh, leader says. Even if it means mass suicide, you do it. Right? Everybody has to follow, absolutely obey and follow the leaders. That is uniformity. That's not unity. That is uniformity where individuality and distinctions are not allowed. That's why in the uh, Catholic Church, there is no, uh, if you will, heresies or like cults. Because you are not allowed to think anywhere, uh, any other way. So there is no cult coming out of Catholic Church. Because you are not allowed to think of it or understand it in any other way. You have to have only one interpretation. Whatever the church tells you, that's what it means. But we are Protestants. By definition, we are the people who protest. And we, uh, so the Protestants like us, we follow you know, the traditions of the reformers like John Calvin, you know, Martin Luther, and, and those. We don't recognize papacy. Pope does not have a final say. We believe in sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. That scripture only, scripture is the final authority in our faith and practice. So we make a distinction between uniformity and unity. Right? We are not uniform. Jesus never called us to be uniform in our faith and practice. We as Protestants, we believe in the unity in the spiritual sense. We believe that there is one Lord, one baptism, one faith. While we acknowledge the distinctions among different traditions, such as Reformed people, there's a Reformed tradition, Anabaptist, uh, there's Methodist. There are many different traditions that came out of the Reformation. Reformers, they put the, uh, put the scripture in, in everyone's hand. It's not just only the, the Pope that interprets and what it means for all the people to believe. But said, no, the scripture is for every one of us. You are to have your own Bible. That's why in, in, in during that time, you know, the, the Bible that they used before that time was uh, uh, Latin, which was a dead language. Nobody ever spoke it. It's so only the, the clergy people had, uh, had understand education to even understand what the Bible said. And they just preached it and just spoke. And people, the common people who were not educated, they didn't even know how to read. So they had to entirely depend on what the clergy and the priests would say. But then reformers came along and said, no, 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 that is not right. We have to in, uh, translate the Bible into our own language. So that's why the, the English Bible, German Bible, French Bible, all this is, came along. And put the Bible in each one's hand and let the, the reader understand what it says. The Word of God is for everyone, not for the small group of people, professional people. As you can see, we do not agree on everything. That's impossible. When you put the Bible in each one's hand, 
We cannot possibly read everything exactly the same way. Pastor Jay and I, we love each other, but we have our differences too. But we are united in our purpose, in our mission of building this church as biblically sound as possible. When I go on mission trips, do you know who I find the, the most or the deepest connection with? It's not like the American tourists. Oh, you're from America. Oh, you're from Virginia. Oh, that's great. We may carry a few conversations, but that's about it. Or if I find in the, in the mission field some Korean like small business owners, oh, you serve kimchi. Oh, that's great. Can I have some? And then talk about Korean, you know, this culture and whatever, food, whatever. Yeah, there is some sort of connection. But you know who I find the true connection with? Brothers and sisters in Christ that I've never met before. I don't know what kind of life they have left, led or culture, language, it's all different. I don't know anything about them. But the fact that when I go and when I meet brothers and sisters in Christ, I get that immediate connection. I feel like we are one because we believe in the same Lord. They're not from the same denomination. There was this time when I was uh, uh, in Cambodia and when uh, I uh, met this uh, Christian worker who was working with a refugee camp. And that's where he was saved. He heard the gospel and came to know Christ. And now he's going back to the refugee camp and serving the people in such a horrible uh, conditions. I couldn't just help but really respect and love that brother for suffering for the gospel. Because he loved Christ. He, he wanted to let people know about uh, the, the, the freedom that they could have in Christ. I had an immediate connection. So even though I didn't know much about his backgrounds or anything, but we were able to talk about what Christ means for us, what the Bible means for us, how it's so life-giving, how it frees us. That's unity. We have nothing in common whatsoever, but being one. We felt so close to one another. That's unity because of Christ. Different race, different ethnicity, culture, nothing in common but faith in Christ. We're talking about spiritual unity. Like conferences like Urbana, like the Gospel Coalition, and I know we're going to make the announcement even about the weekend to remember. Those things, they're not from the same denomination or anything, but we still come together because of our faith in Christ Jesus. And we say, let's work together. But if we say, whoa, you know, you're not from the same denomination as we are, so I'm not going to work with you. You're not really my brother. You're not my sister. I don't really care about you. Then that is wrong. Tribalism is wrong. Throughout uh, history, different denominations were used to reach different types of people, different types of, um, yeah, types of people. Like, um, I, we don't know why, why, but, you know, the Methodists, they tend to, like, really just somehow appeal to, like, a lot of people in the government, right, people who are in the government. A lot of people somehow are drawn to that. Um, like, in the, in, in, the, in the third world areas where, you know, the higher education is not readily available and they, you know, a lot of times, the Pentecostal, charismatic uh, people, the, the churches, they tend to thrive in those uh, environments 
because they can actually see the demonstration of the, the Spirit's power, right? And so that's how a lot of people come to know Christ, through the, the demonstration of the, the, the Holy Spirit. In a more highly educated areas, you know, like, uh, Presbyterianism or like Baptism, uh, Baptists, they tend to thrive in, in those areas because, you know, there are a lot of thinkers. You know, those are the people who want to think and make everything be really reasonable and logical, right? So it's a different net for different people. So having, by having different denominations and really just appealing and really speaking to the heart language of in different types of people that God has used different denominations to bring people to himself. So yes, having many different denominations, definitely there were, uh, it, it has uh, been a really good uh, witness in, in some areas, just fighting over, but also that doesn't mean that all of it is bad. Having dis- distinctions are not in and of itself bad. Right? Having different um, traditions. What Paul is saying here is that what binds us together is the common foundation, and that is Christ Jesus. In verse 11, where is it? Yeah, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What binds us together, what should bring us together, is not so much that, that we should have a uniform understanding, but while acknowledging our differences, we still come back together and, hey, you are my brother, hey, you are my sister, because our foundation is on Christ Jesus. He's saying, hey, Corinthian church, before you argue over whose faction you belong to or who you follow as your preferred leader, know that the church stands on the foundation of Christ and the gospel. Why would you be divided over mere people? What binds you together is Christ. Look to him. And it says, it goes on to say in verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, you will de- uh, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We are all God's temple. Here, you, he's not talking to each individual Christians, but you in, in a plural. In Greek, in the original language, it's plural, use. Like, oh, sorry, like you, all, you, you yourselves. All of you are, all of you collectively, are God's temple, singular. So all of us here together collectively are one God's temple. That's who you are. So Paul is reminding them of their identity. That's the way he was dealing with that issue of divisions in the church. You know, God signified his presence in the temple in the Old Testament by filling it with the cloud of his glory. Now he lives in his people by filling them with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, first and foremost, understand the essence of the church. We are this corporate body. Despite our diversity and differences, we can be united because of Christ our foundation. And verse 7, he says, God's temple is holy. We are holy and sacred in, in the sense that we are, all of us, all of us are set apart for God's use 
and for His glory. So do not, so that's what Paul's making this argument. So do not desecrate the church by breaking it, up, breaking it up into various factions. That is wrong, that is sinful. And he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. It's a strong language, right? If anybody destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That's how serious God takes it. Those people, people who divide the church, tear them down, they will not be spared at the judgment. Build up the church, not tear it down. And the second point, I'm going to make it quick. Um, the second point that uh, Paul brings out here is the church's relation to the pastors. As people say, no, no, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, and all these different uh, things that the people are following. Now he turns his attention to the church's relation to the pastors. Paul refers to himself, uh, or Apollos, as builders. The true builders build with lasting material, gold, silver, and precious stones that stands the test of divine judgment. It's the ministry that seeks to honor Christ, not quantity that will win the praise of, uh, praise of people. Right? The emphasis on the Word of God and the gospel-centered uh, ministry, prayer-filled, a ministry that depends on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the pastors are to do. That's our job, is to do so. On the other hand, if the pastors build a church with cheap, um, shabby things of the world, and that work will not stand the, the test of divine judgment. The ministry that is in a hurry to build a crowd, but does not build a church. They kind of, if you focus on the, what is fair, oh, you know, they say if you do it this way, if you have this program, that, that can draw people in, make it popular, or based on a pop psychology, or maybe entertainment-driven. Those are kind of work, if that's the focus of the church, then that kind of work, that kind of ministry will not stand the test of divine judgment and the time comes, all of that will be burned up. And that's what this passage uh, is talking about. And the pastors who are into that, they will suffer loss, meaning there's going to be a loss of reward. All his life work will be burned up at the judgment. It's going to disappear. It's going to be gone. He himself will be saved, but there's nothing to show for. By the skin of his teeth, he will be saved. So when we look at the work of the pastors, then how are we to view or how are we to under, or relate to its pastors? Because the tendency, once again, is to either deify or defy the pastors. Here, this is how what, uh, and this is once again the implication of the gospel. What Paul says is in verse 21. So let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. What's he talking about? He's saying, do not uh, boast about being some men's disciples. Don't, oh, you know, I, I follow uh, uh, you know, John Piper. He's the man. Or, you know, I, I follow John MacArthur. Or I, I follow Tim Keller, all these things. Don't boast about, like, how, you know, how you follow them, right? Don't boast about being part of somebody's, you know, disciples. And what he says is, 
The second part is this, for all things are yours. All things are yours. What is he saying? Paul is saying that believers have access to all spiritual blessings through Christ. He goes on to say, this is the implication of the gospel. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are, in, uh, and you are Christ. And Christ is God's. What is he saying? If you stop and think about this, he's saying all the spiritual blessings, eternal life, fruit of the Spirit, presence of God, fellowship with God, all the spiritual blessings that we have, we have that access through Christ. And if you stop and think about it, it's an incredible statement. If we belong to Christ, then because of Him, all things belong to us. Do you understand? He's saying that you don't belong to some leaders. Some people say, oh, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas. It says, no, 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 you got it all backwards. We don't belong to those leaders and then you follow them, but the leaders themselves belong to you. You got it backwards. We don't belong and we follow them, but the pastors or the leaders, the ministers of the gospel, they belong to the church. They belong to you. You don't belong to them. You don't just follow some random, uh, you know, charismatic pastor and just do whatever he tells you and you follow them. No. The pastors belong to you. We belong to you. Pastors, leaders, ministers belong to the whole church. That's what it means. All things are yours. All the good things that God has in store for us. Pastors, spiritual gifts, intimacy with God, presence of God, gift of prayers, all the good things, all the blessings that we have. They're all yours. You have a direct access to every one of them. So that's why you cannot say, you know, to a, like a pastor, uh, somebody who has a really like famous pastor, they, the church people can say, oh, he's, my, he's our pastor, so he cannot be really shared with anybody else. He's ours. You cannot say that because all pastors belong to the church of Christ. We belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. Christ is in union with God the Father and, and, and with God the Holy Spirit. Likewise, just as we are in, uh, in union with Christ, so are we with the church leaders. We are united just as we are in Christ and Christ is with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. They are united, right? God the, uh, the Trinitarian God. Just like they are united. I am united to you, Passenger is united to you, and you are united to us. We belong to each other. It's not, oh, I follow him, I belong to him. Oh, I follow him. Man, he's such an amazing leader. I, I belong to him. I'm going to follow him. He's my preferred leader. He's my preferred teacher. He's my preferred pastor. No, 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 no. All the spiritual good things God has provided for us through Christ Jesus. All things are yours. That's what Paul is saying. And that's why he says, all that division, all the quarreling, all the arguments, that's pointless. It's inappropriate. Because you have everything 
your hand. All the, all the, the work that Paul has done, all the work that Apollos has done, all the work that Cephas has done, all these other pastors that came along, they all belong to you. You don't belong to them. We belong to each other, right? See, if you truly understand, and that comes from the gospel, right? Because we are Christ. Because Christ is in union with the, the Father and, and the, the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are one. God has brought us together. Now we have unlimited access to God, all the spiritual blessings. So if you truly understand that, then there is no cause for division. Because why fight over who's, I, I follow this guy or I follow that guy, when God has given all of the blessing to you and the church, the leaders, pastors belong to you. Why would you want to fight over that? You see, once again, it comes back to not really understanding the gospel. Gospel tells us that we have all these blessings, benefits through Christ Jesus. So now we are one. We are united. Though we may have our distinctions, though we may not agree on every single thing, we can still be united. We can be one because our foundation is Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Let's go before the Lord. Uh, just take a moment to uh, turn to Him. Yeah, let's examine our hearts too to see if there were divisions, arguments, gossiping, things that may really hurt one another. Say some things that may bring somebody down or tear down. Oh, did you hear about him? Did you hear about her? He's so this and that. Are we building up the church, the body of Christ, or are we tearing the body down? Do we deify the pastors or do we defy the pastors? Or be divided over them? When through Christ Jesus, all things are made available to us, all things are yours, Paul says. All the good things are yours. You have them. Why fight over mere men or argue over petty things? The things that do not really matter in the end. So let's examine our own hearts to see if there were things that we have done, things that we have said that have divided or tear down one another that we may truly come to this unity through Christ Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the truth that all things belong to us. The spiritual blessings, every blessing comes from you. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. Our fellowship with you, our restored relationship with you, presence of the Holy Spirit in us, fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, eternal life, fruit that's, being born, uh, that's bearing, transformation taking place, 
for all the good things that are happening. But it comes from you. And we have full access. There is, there is no uh, security level that we have to jump through. All blessings are readily available to every believer. We have it all. So why do we, Lord, get so petty at times and argue over things that do not really matter in the end? And so, Lord, help us, God, to turn to you and allow us to come to a deeper understanding of the gospel that really all things are available to us. You have given us that full access through your son, Jesus. So may we receive it by faith, be thankful, and cause us to live a life that is consistent and according to the scripture, according to the gospel. Change us, transform us, lead us. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.